Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another brand new, all new, all different point one edition of Ideas Don't Bleed, the podcast presented by Ashcan Press. We don't have to do all that. Comics Corporation. Jesus. I'm Griffin Sheridan. Ethan S. Parker is here. Matthew Rosenberg is here. How are you gentlemen doing? I'm I'm good. I'm, I didn't want to talk because I didn't know if Ethan was eating his croissant. That he, <laughs> Ethan that is he, eating a croissant? Said, I made a point to say that I would be subtly eating a croissant sandwich so that I wouldn't be part of the show. I'm like waiting it for it to, to like kind of creep well, up into frame. And you're yeah, just, we, mm-hmm. you made a point of saying it would be subtle. We did not agree mm-hmm. to those terms. No. <laughs> Ethan uh, has the croissant. Matt is drinking chocolate milk out of the little chocolate the milk bottle. syrup container. <laughs> All right, because of it... a life hack. A life hack. I think it's a great. I think it's a great thing. I'm just when saying. You, a when visual. You, when you get is... to the bottom of the syrup container, there's a lot of residue. You paid for mm-hmm. that. Pour the milk into the bottle. You have a nice to go bottle. It's it's just good. It's good economics. Yeah, I agree. We're not laughing point. because it's stupid. Like we're laughing because it's a, like it's we're a laughing because it's because gr- it's gross. Dessert genius. No, it's awesome. That I don't think would have ever occurred cho- to us. Chocolate milk's a beverage, not a dessert. <laughs> it's kind it's of a dessert. It's not a dessert. <laughs> I uh, this is a digression that we don't need to go into, but I'm doing it anyway. Beverage uh, talk. I went to a very fancy restaurant in Chicago with. Uh, well, I'll just say with a, a Nick Spencer, amazing Spider-Man. Okay, wow. And uh, oh. he took me to a fancy restaurant. And he had to make a reservation far in advance, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't have anything to drink that I wanted. Uh, but then they had a root beer float on the dessert menu. And I ordered that as my drink for dinner. And mm-hmm. uh, Nick made so much fun of me that the waiter then made fun of me. <laughs> I was like, if, if you're not allowed to order it with your, you know, like say something you know i i shouldn't uh-huh. be ridiculed for this if but, you uh, if you see something say something if I you believe, see something on the menu order it whenever you want it's yeah. you know how menus have like little symbols that tell you something has peanuts in it and stuff uh-huh. like that yeah, there yeah, should be like a little symbol it's like you're gonna be bullied for this <laughs> <laughs> yeah D- don't do this it's disgusting but they didn't have yeah. that little symbol so i did it and you know what uh, it was excellent. I had a root beer float as my drink. It was great. Uh, I think we could have our special guests weigh in on this. This week, we are joined by Mr. Christopher Cantwell. Christopher, thank you so much for being here, sir. Thank and you and to, to kick it off, we got to ask you the important question. <laughs> Would you ever have a root beer float just as you drink? <laughs> for dinner like with dinner with a full dinner yeah yeah what so was the dinner sorry did yeah you that's say? the thing i want to know what the uh, dinner was uh i i i had a hamburger <laughs> okay that seemed it was like yeah it was like a fancy hamburger but yeah yeah, yeah it's like it's that, that that's like a that feels like high class johnny rockets you know what yeah, i mean it's I like know a if you want to do like type thing. surf and turf and a root beer float <laughs> might be a little weird you know what i mean filet. Uh, or like just heavily ethnic, although that could be kind of awesome too. You know? I I I fully am of the belief that every restaurant, regardless of its of where the f- point of origin of the food is, should serve milkshakes. I think every 
You know what's great with uh, Indian food? A milkshake. Chocolate milkshake is great with Indian food. Ooh, butter chicken and a little <laughs> little vanilla it's, malt on the side. Oh, it's a little. It's creamy. It's delicious. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I was thrown off by the statement "high class Johnny Rockets" because I because <laughs> uh, Johnny Rockets is high class. It's high class. Is there a high, higher class Johnny Rockets? Is that what higher class? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, really is, nice. Really, yeah. yeah. The reservation only Johnny Rockets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gotta uh, book it out months in advance dude it's crazy it's crazy uh i know a guy <laughs> you know johnny i know johnny Holy i went to shit. i went to camp with johnny rocket and i can get you <laughs> uh well now that we've talked about uh garbage <laughs> for a while garbage uh, talk we should talk about actual things that people <laughs> tune in to listen to. I actually don't know what people tune in to listen to. And I feel like when we talk probably about garbage, good. people are excited. It's and then probably this. it drives yeah. engagement. Yeah. People yeah. love yeah. when we're beverage boys, when we talk about different oh, yeah. drinks that we like having. I think we, it's a it's a recurring segment on the show. I, I don't know why we haven't just sort of made it the centerpiece of it yet. But mm, you're sure. just. You're too afraid, Matt. You're too. You're, you're like dipping your toes into the beverage talk. I feel like the, go I, feel, I feel like comic the comics community. Like we can hold our own in podcasting with the comics community. I feel like whatever mm-hmm. like the beverage podcasting community is is probably mm-hmm. like that's beverage like podcasting community. I feel like that's like yeah. fucking with the mafia. Like you just don't. You you don't that's probably it. true. It's true. Yeah, these guys were on there and they were just making jokes about Johnny Rockets the other day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that. They were making fun of Johnny Rockets, man. We gotta break their fucking legs. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. We don't know where they live because one of them keeps saying that the others live in completely different places every time. <laughs> Just because I don't keep track of where you guys live doesn't mean that's for your own protection. Okay. Enough of beverage talk. That was beverage talk sponsored by Johnny Rockets. And now we're gonna do comics. Uh so we always start with the same question. Uh, it's a sort of different question for you than anyone else. It, it normally, I feel like, has a kind of... Um, well, I'm just going to ask it, and then we can talk about why it feels different. But the question is, uh, to start, why comics? Why, <laughs> why, why do you make comics? What is it about comics that, that pulled you in? Oh, boy. Um, well, I mean, I, I feel like I... I I've only been doing it for like five or six years or so. Um, But I mean, I read a ton when I was in grade and middle school. uh, And it was just a really important medium to me that I loved. Uh, I grew up an only child, so it was just something to spend hours doing um, when my TV time was cut off, which it never really was. I mean, let's be honest. It was just like... (laughs) Uh, everyone just kind of feels mutual guilt in the house when you watch that much TV and then you go do something else. And it's kind of like comics are like TV, but you're reading it. You're reading TV you know, sure, yeah. a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just I dug deep on them back then. And then when I came out to L.A. for college, um, I would start I started driving out to Golden Apple in L.A. and Heidi Ho in Santa Monica and just hanging out there a bunch and. Um, reading a reading a ton of stuff. My first my first job out of well, no, it was after freshman year. I got like a internship, so it was like the first thing I did mm-hmm. um, was the summer of two thousand one. I was an intern at Marvel Studios when I was like nineteen. Oh wow! And this is when Marvel was like Marvel Studios was like three offices. It was mm-hmm. like Avi Arad, 
um, Feige, who I think yep. at the time was like 28 or something mm -hmm. like that. And Far then fine. my boss was the head of research and development, which was Chris Yost, who ended up going oh, into movies and TV and comics as well. But sure. at the time, he hadn't done that yet. So it was just him and I putting together like packets on characters. And there was like a, a comic book vault. Um, so but then I kind of I kind of, you know, went heavily into the TV film route of stuff and then came back to it when I was finishing up the last season of my show. And I, I ended up getting connected to, to Karen Berger and I pitched her something that I'd had as an idea for like 20 years and oh. it just never had translated. Um, and then that we ended up putting that together as my first comic out of her like little boutique imprint um, Berger books, which, which was through dark horse at the time. I think it still is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it's, it's just fascinating. Like the, the question why comics for everyone else feels like sort of aspirational. And when you are coming off a, a beloved TV show four seasons of a beloved TV show and you're making comics, it's more of a, like, why, why are you doing uh, that? Yeah. Why are yeah. you doing this to yourself? <laughs> why, why are you, there, there's a, there's a like ordering a root beer flow with dinner where you're like, why are you doing that? Why'd like... you do that to yourself? Why don't <laughs> have some self-respect? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I, I say that as someone who uh, uh, I chose to make comics, and I, I love comics, and I um, I care about comics deeply. But it is it, it is something that I think is intriguing uh, to to not that you didn't immediately just go. I need to do more TV. I need to be, and I'm you know. Uh, why did it feel what What about comics felt good to you when you were finishing? four seasons of halt and catch fire why did comics seem appealing it was it was really appealing because it was uh the creative process was so kind of compact and and fast sure you know i just come off something where you're working with hundreds of people and it, i mean our show came together really quickly in terms of development mm -hmm. and i mean i think we we pitched that show or we wrote it on spec and then we sold it like a year and a half later after development. And then we were shooting a pilot like, you know, six months later. And then Jesus. we're in a writer's room six months after that. And then we're on the air. So it was it was really fast. Yeah. And it has not happened that fast since <laughs> for anything I've done. Sure. Um, and so the, the but it was it was still this kind of massive endeavor. And so um, what I loved about putting this comic together with Karen, which was called She Could Fly, was that it just was immediate. There was such yeah. an immediacy to the, to the, the story and, and to the whole process that it was, it was great. And so, and it was also, the feedback loop was very small. It was me and it was Martin Marazzo and Karen and her husband, Richard, who did all the, the design and, and, mm -hmm. and that was it. And then we just turned it in and it was, you know, the, the, I feel like it, it was on the shelf very quickly and, and there yeah. it was. So, I mean, I just, I love, the immediacy of it in a way that, you know, where you're like, what if, you know, you think of some story and then you have 14 dozen people be like, okay, well, that's going to require some cables <laughs> and a 5k. And what if you change this restaurant to a coffee kiosk? And, you know, it's, it just can be really dispiriting, especially yeah. now. Right. I think like even now, like the development process, I feel like it's just gotten worse where you can sure. just, sure just grind it into nothing until you're like, I don't care anymore about anything I've ever done. So like with comics, you can get it out there. Like I think, yeah. I think artists like make things to, to, to make things. Right. And I think 
screenwriting can get to a place of you're you're just generating sales documents to try to actually do it and you can get stuck doing that forever so, yeah yeah i uh i i i grew up and uh, around writers and my family are all writers and so I grew up on sets and stuff and uh but I never wanted to be a writer and then I started making comics uh around the time that my brother started trying to be a screenwriter and I remember like I was making stuff and and I went to the set he was filming a movie I went to the set and I was so incredibly jealous and I was like I just sit in a room by myself <laughs> And I write things and then someone I've never met in person draws them and sends them back to me. And here's my brother on set with like these movie stars and all these people and he's directing and all this stuff. And then um, his movie went over budget and they had trouble with financing and they were like, everything shut down for six months. And he was just, you know, understandably in crisis. And I was like, oh, wait, no, I love comics. <laughs> like, yeah, I, 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 I was like all my jealousy dissipated right there as i was like oh no i can just make something and it can be on the shelf by the time he's figured out yeah it's the best like, comics have been such an incredible pressure valve over the last few years of being in development on whatever it is because when you get to your you know frustrated peak i can turn back to whatever i'm working on that moment and be like well this is going to be out in like five like there's not yeah this isn't like pushing a boulder up a hill, although sometimes it can be, but like sure. in, in a very different way. And like, but I will say that at this point I do, you know, with the strike and everything that's happening, like I do, I do really love that side of things and I don't want it to go away entirely. Sure. <laughs> but but uh, it's nice to have, it's very nice to have both because I think as a, like I said, like a pressure valve, it's great to come over here and be like, I want to do this. And, you know, to, to, to go to, you know, Comic-Con next week and get to just talk about all this stuff we all love is going to be wonderful. You know, I think that that's great as opposed to that. There's, there's a lot of bad actors in TV and film, especially in the development process. And, and there has there, everything feels like it's held at a remove sometimes. I mean, I've worked with some mm -hmm. great people, but at the same time, I, I, most of the people in comics are in it because they love it. Yeah. And TV and film, that's not necessarily true, especially when you get over to the studio and network side of things. Uh, it can get gnarly. And, you know, it's it's almost like not, not it's like frowned upon to to be effusive. Sure. Um, unless you're like cheerleading a room about a pitch and the most important story that you have to tell. Otherwise, no one gives a shit. Like it's, yeah. uh, so that, it, yeah, that, that can run me down a little bit. There's sure. Like, there's some ennui when it comes to that stuff in TV and film. Comics, not so much, not as much yet, at least. I'm I'm curious though like I feel like less so for fans but I, there is a sort of undercurrent in comics in fandom but I also feel like a lot of comic creators behind the scenes grumble about the pipeline of like TV film people into comics because it's you know like there people people think of it as tourism you know it's like well you have a more lucrative mm -hmm. job that's that's higher profile and and you're just down here to like you know you had a screenplay that wasn't quite working and and you <laughs> hammered it out into a comic sure. so you could get some heat on it or whatever was that something you were cognizant of coming into comics was that something you cared about is that not i've never encountered it personally and i feel like i've always loved it so much that like i and i i feel like i do enough of it where it doesn't feel like that and there's nothing i've sure. ever really turned there's nothing i've ever turned from a, another property into a comic well this can this can just be a comic it doesn't yeah, yeah. i mean if anything things have gone more the other way not very much but 
you know, there's that, you know, but the, I mean, I understand that. I mean, I remember, I remember when we, uh, I remember a Marvel summit during the pandemic where, you know, like John Ridley got on mm-hmm. and it was like, whoa, you know, I mean, yeah. that was, that was kind of crazy, but I feel like I'm more, I mean, I, I did halt and I've done some other things, but it, it's also, I don't know. I feel like I'm just kind of going where I, I can number sure. one, where I'm allowed, where I'm welcome. <laughs> and then also where I want, you know, at, yeah. at the end. Um, but yeah, I think if anything, like what I've been more cognizant of is, is more the like, comics as a means to an end to go back the other way mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of a, a thing especially among certain you know imprints where it's really just they want to generate a bunch of ip yeah, yeah to get licensed or adapted or sold and obviously i know that there's more money in that for the imprints and they can stay alive longer but i really love the ones that are there to make a comic book number one before they think about anything else and yeah. i think i've always tried to approach the projects i'm doing that way that are I guess have that potential, which would be like the creator own stuff. Cause the other stuff is just work for hire. I mean, maybe I got some of that TV film stink off of me by being like, well, I'm writing Dr. Doom. So there's nothing, <laughs> they own this. This was written by Marvel incorporated. You know, it's not, it's, it's not me. It's yeah. really doing it for that. Yeah. No, I, I, I always think it's funny because I, I, I hear fans talk about the sort of that and I hear some creators grumble about it and, and whatever. And I, I, then I sit down with comic writers and like, it just, it, like you said, it just goes as much the other way of people being like, oh, man, I just hope that this turns into a TV show and I can get yeah. on my own thing. And you're just like, well, everyone is always eyeing the other, you know, the other side of the right. hill and and whatever. Yeah. And it's 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 such a fascinating um, comics is just so fascinating because it feels so small that I feel like people people infer people's intent and people's thoughts and there's sort of like weird purity tests to it that I think are absurd. And, and, you know, you come out and, and are coming off a hit show. And I think, you know, I, I I don't know from experience, but I, I would, I would have thought that people would be like, well, you know, is this guy really a comics guy? And then, you know, maybe, I mean, yeah. And you just have to kind of, I I don't know what it takes with fickle people, but like you, you could earn credibility at a certain point. But I think that like, I mean, you got nominated for an Eisner for your second book. I feel like that. Yeah, for Doctor Doom, that was nice. I mean, I, and I, that was that was great. But I mean, I, again, like you're talking about when you say a hit show. I mean, what metric are we using to define that, right? Because no one watched it when it was on. Sure. If I met someone that had seen Halt and Catch Fire while it was actually airing, I feel like I'd have to tag them like a panda. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> that's like an endangered species. Like I feel like it's it it, it kind of caught a second wind, and it, it's it feels miraculous to rogers and i that people still kind of know about it in sure. this you know after kind of the the death of the monoculture that mm-hmm. people still even talk about it and it hasn't been on for six years or so but it, you know we came off that show and you know we were like well an amc was like what what's the next thing you want to do and and the amount of work we put into that pitch versus the pitch for halt and catch fire was was very small and they they, they picked it up but it, they picked it up to development and yeah. then by then the business had changed and it was a mini room instead of shooting a pilot. And then you're 16 weeks in and you do all these scripts and then they don't make it. And yeah. then you go, okay. And it, you know, it was, I, I felt sh- sheltered and naive for thinking that it would be automatic. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sure. But I remember complaining to the executives and saying like, so wait, so we're going to do from the guys who did halt and catch fire comes nothing, you know? And it's <laughs> like, that's, that's unfortunately how it goes. And it's like, you know, it's, I can, some people will return my emails. Some people won't. And you'd be surprised by who, you know? And I yeah. think that, that 
that's very much at play there. And so it's, it's really just like, where are the avenues to do stuff, you sure. know, like, um, and how things evolve, whether they be comics or TV and film. And it's like, I want to, I want to make things. So if I can go over here and do that, well, I want to do that, you know? So you, you, you come in and you do Sheikah Fly and it's, uh, uh, very well received book. It's an excellent book. I, I, I do love the book. Um, and then at some point, you you start doing stuff in Marvel. Did mm-hmm. they reach out to you? Did you were you reaching out to them? I think that the way that it worked was it things just kind of parlayed into the next thing. So like, she could fly. I did with Karen, mm-hmm. and Karen. Uh, obviously was at that was doing her thing at dark horse yeah and so at a convention i was talking to mike richardson and talking about how much i love the mask sure and then he was like do you want to do some mask for us and i was like yeah so i did four issues of a mask series Mm -hmm. and then i feel like that and she could fly parlayed into doing something else with karen but at the same time will moss at marvel was like hey and he i remember he reached out to me and i was in the mini room for this second show at amc Mm -hmm. that we were hoping that would get made yeah. Um, and he was like, I mean, I, I was in the writer's room every day and, and Will wrote me and he said, hey, it's a 10 page story for a, a supplemental book for War of the Realms. And it's about mm-hmm. what the other like smaller Marvel characters are doing during the whole thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't even know who the character is yet, but would you be willing to would you want to do 10 pages? Would you want to do a 10 page story? And I was. I still remember where I was in my office. And I mean, I was, I was the showrunner of the show and I was so excited. I was like, yes. And then for two days, I was like, I wonder what character it's going to be, you know, like crazy. And he came back and said it was Dr. Doom. And I was really excited. And I, I did so much research for that. I mean, I was at the time we were writing a show, the show that never got made called rainy day people. And it was about a um, addiction and mental health recovery center in like Hawaii, but family Mm -hmm. run. And like the previous generation, like it had been like kind of like an Esalen, like Alan Watts kind of hippie wild man thing. Mm-hmm. And his the the character's daughter had become like a doctor, like really obviously in in you know, in opposition to her father, went and became an actual doctor of addiction recovery medicine and psychiatrist and all that uh-huh. stuff. Um, and so we were doing a bunch of research for that, but like in the I stopped doing all that and was just, I was reading, I read every Dr. Doom thing I could remember. I read, you know, all the, all the early stuff, um, you know, Triumph and Torment, Books of Doom. I mean, just for 10 pages Yeah, yeah. and loaded it up, you know, and from there that story came out and I was like, okay. And then Tom Brevoort said, Hey, we're going to do a a full Dr. Doom book. Do you want to pitch on it? And it was, I went up against like other people. They didn't just hand me the gig. Of course, yeah. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, you know, we're we're asking a lot of folks, but and again, I went and did a ton of research, and I just really wanted to do it, and I got that, I got that job too. So, yeah, yeah. I I, I still remember. Uh, it's funny the because I I feel like that's one of those things. Like I I remember where I was when I got my first Marvel. Like, hey, do you want to come do a ten pager mm-hmm. uh, on my first one? And I was going out to the supermarket to get to pick up something for dinner and i like saw i saw an email from marvel and it was someone i an editor i'd met and whatever and i opened it on my phone and i remember just like sitting down on the stairs in my apartment and just being like i just need to sit 
and like look at this and i like read the email like four times and then i went back into my apartment and like showed my girlfriend and i was like look at this and she was like you're gonna do a marvel story and i was like yeah and then and then the email was the same it was like we don't know what it's gonna be it's a 10 pager and i was like my mind is just like what do i yeah, do, what like, do, I do? could it be you know like i wonder yeah. you know and you're saying it i was saying this to my wife at the time and like we already had kids and i was like i wonder if it'll be she was i think she was she was no she uh we had like a one-year-old and a five-year-old and mm -hmm. and i was just crazy about it i mean i i remember like halt was written as a spec like and we, we had never done anything professionally and i've been at that point i graduated in 2004 from a usc film school and you know we didn't sell it until december 2011 but like uh -huh. a year before and it took a year to put the whole thing together like i remember driving home from amc's offices and it was like our last kind of real meeting on the books that people that had read the spec script who might be interested in it it was literally like hbo showtime and and amc and the first two they brought you in and they said here's our development chart of the shows we're trying to do and here's a bottle of water and mm -hmm. validate your parking and you know send us the next thing you write and you're like okay you know yeah um and I remember, you know, I've told this story before, but with AMC, it was kind of the last thing left. And I I pulled off the Cloverfield exit in LA off the 10 and, and just like practiced sound bites in the car at a 76 gas station. Uh -huh. I just tried to keep them talking as much as possible in that room. And they brought us in. It was the first time I was in a conference room and not just somebody's office. And like three executives came in and they all had copies of the script. And so we could tell something was different, but we just wanted to keep them talking. Mm -hmm. And I drove home that day and it took extra long because Obama was here. <laughs> and so I had to go way south. And I was living downtown at the time. And I got all the way home like hours later. And there was an email from our agent who, you know, the guy that didn't return our calls very much at all, sure. if ever. And he was like, hey, don't hold me to this, but I think I can sell this to them. And that had taken me like eight years. Yeah, and yeah. I did a similar thing where you just kind of sit on the floor and go like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Things are different now. But I felt the same way when Will Moss wrote me. It wasn't like, I wasn't, so, I didn't feel like a Hollywood big shot, like kicking Will's door and being like, hey, you got any Dr. Doom? Like it wasn't, yeah. it was, it was just as exciting. I was like, oh shit. You know what I mean? Like, and I just read everything and put every kind of reference I could in there yeah. to every Doom story I could. Uh, I always, yeah. I always, I always have to apologize to my first, uh, Luca Pizzari, who drew my first Marvel story. Uh, because i wrote it and i wrote it it was for secret wars and there was a it was like battle world and they're like you just make a world up and put someone there and they were like you know and i i did it and i was like it's going to be the x-men and the opening scene there's 26 x-men standing in a room and i listed all of them and <laughs> and jake thomas who was my editor called and he was like hey so this is a brutal ask for your artist to just draw 26 characters 24 of them don't speak um why are you doing this and i said i don't know if i'm ever going to get to write the x-men again yeah i, I want to be able to say like yeah I, I wrote i wrote nightcrawler he's there i wrote colossus he's there and he was like he was like that's not a good answer and he was like but i'm a sucker for it it can stay in and so now whenever i see luca Pizzari, i have to be like i'm sorry man i'm Are sorry i did that to you was that was that his first story too or was it It was his it was his first marvel thing too so he, his he might have been excited to do it like i feel like i've, I've had that happen where you because my first yeah. the first artist i worked with on that doom story who's gone off to do bigger better things everywhere is sean tormey oh yeah and yeah. he and he drew that doom story and so like i sometimes it's like 
oh my God, you put the Hulk in there. Thanks so much. You know, it's like, yeah, I've always yeah. wanted to draw him, even though he's in the background saying nothing. Yeah, exactly. I, do that, you know? Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a nerdy excitement to it that is, uh, you hope, infectious for everybody. Yeah, um, exactly. So you you guys are telling me and Ethan that when they come a-knocking, they're like, what do you guys want to do? We're going to say, what if we put every Spider-Man that's ever existed <laughs> in one room? In one room, it has like nothing it's to do with a lot. You pile them yeah. into a clown car, yeah. and you know, because they're so like you know, they're gonna stick to like they don't have to just be standing there. We're gonna yeah. fill the floor. People will be standing. We're gonna walls. fill the walls. They're gonna be hanging from the walls or the ceiling. They're ceiling. all over the ceiling. You look won't even the, be able to tell look out the window. Room. They're outside Neither the window. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying yeah. that's legit. We should go for it. Yeah, I we don't see go. any reason they're not gonna be excited <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah, great. It's done. That's Sweet. the pitch, guys. That's the whole pitch. A whole you did it. tighter verse, if you will. Wow, that's a good. Write that down, Ethan Griffin. Write you that down. You can have that one for free. CB, <laughs> we're awaiting your call. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of part one of our discussion with Christopher Cantwell. Make sure to check out Star Trek Defiant. Briar and Thanos, as well as everything else he's working on. To get the latest episodes of this podcast, as well as news, giveaways, and even comics delivered straight to your inbox, go to ashcanpress.com and sign up for the newsletter. We'll be back next week for part two of our discussion, and in the meantime, you can write to us at ideasdontbleedpod at gmail.com, or tweet to Matthew Rosenberg at ashcanpress on Twitter, me at Tales to Astonish, or Griffin at Griff Sheridan. We'll include some of your correspondence on the show, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. And big thanks to Summer People for our theme song, Where's the Poison? Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.